We're going to be in Psalm 136 this morning, so you can turn there. I'm actually going to read the psalm. It's great to have, most importantly, to have your Bible open, to be in the psalm, to get to know God's Word that way. Uh, I'm going to read from the contemporary English version today. Usually I'm reading from the English Standard Version. These are just different English translations of the same original languages that we have. Um, Sometimes we can just word things slightly differently, and I think the contemporary English version does a little better job on this psalm in in certain aspects, and I think you'll see as we go through. So we'll be there. And it's um, my pleasure to bring you God's Word today. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here, the lead pastor. And usually I'm the guy who gets to preach, not always. Uh, We have a whole team. But uh, it's great to be back in the pulpit and bringing God's Word. I trust that He will minister uh, to you and bring glory to His name this morning as we look at His Word. So Psalm 136. in, uh, to start off, though, a little intro, in July 1963, the Beatles recorded a song that would go on to define them as a group and be one of the top singles in music history. Rolling Stone magazine actually ranked it as the 64th best song of all time. And you're probably guessing, if you know a little bit of history, or if you're looking at the title of my message, which is on the projector there, um, the song is She Loves You. And the famous refrain that falls is the, the words, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now when they first wrote it, not many of their friends liked it. Actually, Paul McCartney's dad said, wouldn't it be better to say she loves you, yes, yes, yes? And he didn't quite get what they were doing. That song caught on. It helped usher them into worldwide popularity. And they were known in many places in the world, actually, as the singers of the yeah, yeah music. That's how they understood the, the Beatles. Well, why am I telling you this? When, because when singing music, repetition makes sense w- when it would otherwise look silly on paper, right? We don't talk the way we sing. You know, if, if a friend of mine was having relational problems, you know, he was, he was engaged to a woman and having relational problems, and I went up to him and I said, you know, she loves you, yeah, Yeah, yeah. My friend would be like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) You Do you have too much coffee or something? What's going on? We don't talk like that. But when you sing, it makes sense. Part of the popularity of the song is is how it's phrased. Well, we're going to look at Psalm 136, and Psalm 136 is full of repetition. Psalm 136, and actually all the Psalms, they're songs. They're not letters. They're, They're not even poetry. Really, they're songs. And so we have to understand that when we look at the Psalms, that they're songs. And just like we might read the lyrics to a song, a contemporary song, we should read the Psalms that way and look at what are the themes that they're getting at and how are things arranged to bring emphasis to certain things. Now, it would be really cool if we had the original arrangement. We don't. Also, it's in Hebrew, too, so we don't quite get the rhyming and so forth. But these are songs. And what you're going to see in this refrain in this song is it's bringing home a really important point that God loves you. And so it repeats it. So I've titled this, He Loves You, Yeah, 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 um, so that you'd remember Psalm 136 and this wonderful truth that God loves you. An amazing truth. What I want to do actually is I want to read it. And the way that this song originally this would have been sung was probably with a soloist, someone who led in worship, and then a a choir or the congregation replying. 
So I'm going to actually have you stand up and be the choir. You're not going to have to sing. You can say it. I'm not going to sing. Um, I'm going to say it. But I want you to do the refrain. I'll have it projected. And this is why I chose the contemporary English version, because they translate uh, the phrase in the ESV for his steadfast love endures forever with God's love never fails. Same wording, really, same meaning, but more it's briefer and I think more song-like. That's what I want you guys to say. So it'll be up here. I'm gonna, I'll state something. And I want you to say God's love never fails. Now, always in, in responsive reading, we have to avoid the monotone drone, right? Like where it's, you know, God loves never fails. God's love never fails, right? We tend to do that. I don't know why. I don't think anybody's thinking how can I be monotone, but it usually or often comes off that way. I want you to do something a little more towards like if you were a bunch of Marines and I said, I want you to run a mile and you're supposed to say, yes, sir, right? Or I want you to jump, how high, sir, together. Now, I don't want you to scream the refrain, but something a little more like that. So instead of, like, instead of saying God's love never fails, something like this. God's love never fails, all right, together. So there's some emphasis. Do you think you can do that? All right, so why don't you stand up, and let me pray first, because we want to hear God even as we're doing this together through his word and through the proclamation of his word. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 136 and the glorious truths in it that you want to convey to us, you want to transform us, and you want to empower us to be your ambassadors to the world that needs to hear these truths. So, so help us to listen, help us to read well, and Lord, we pray uh, that you would be glorified in it all. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll start verse 1. I will say the verse, and you guys will say your nice, emphatic refrain. Praise the Lord. He is good. Praise the God of all gods. Praise the Lord of lords. Only God works great miracles. God's love never fails. With wisdom, he made the sky. God's love never fails. The Lord stretched the earth over the ocean. God's love never fails. He made the bright lights in the sky. God's love never fails. He lets the sun rule each day. God's love never fails. He lets the moon and stars rule each night. God struck down the firstborn in every Egyptian family. He rescued Israel from Egypt. God used his great strength and his powerful arm. He split the Red Sea apart. The Lord brought Israel safely through the sea. He destroyed the Egyptian king and his army there. God's love never fails. The Lord led his people through the desert. God's love never fails. Our God defeated mighty kings. God's love never fails. And he killed famous kings. God's love never fails. One of them was Sihon, king of the Amorites. God's love never fails. Another was King Og of Bashan. God took away their land. God's love never fails. He gave their land to Israel, the people who serve him. God's love never fails. God saw the trouble we were in. God's love never fails. He rescued us from our enemies. God's love never fails. He gives food to all who live. God's love never fails. Praise God in heaven. God's love never 
Amen. Well done, everybody. Sit down, please. That's excellent. I think you know what that psalm's about. This, this wonderful psalm, you're going to remember that, I think. That's the, the point here, the repetition and, and the illustration, really, of how, in particular, he loves us. So that's what we're going to look at as we go through this psalm. We're going to look at that theme of his love, and we're going to look at how he loves us. He loves us in creation. He loves us in redemption, how he rescues us. And then, really, with that, this psalm uh, calls us to respond in thanksgiving and praise. That word uh, praise uh, at the end and praise throughout is a word actually can be translated maybe more accurately, give thanks. And so the call to give thanks to him in light of this. So, so let's dig into those topics. First, I want to talk about his love. It's important to do this because in our culture, we really only have one word for love, um, and we use it in all different ways, don't we? Uh, we can say that we love all sorts of things. I could say to my wife, I probably shouldn't say this, but I might say, say she bring, makes me some ice cream and she brings it in, and I say, oh, honey, I love Moose, Track, Moose Tracks ice cream. And, honey, I love you even more. And I think she'd be kind of puzzled, like, does, like how much more than Moose Tracks ice cream does he love me? You know, what, that's you know, not a good idea, right, um, to, to, to communicate that way. But we use the word love for both sorts of things, don't we, in our culture. And it can be hard to know, like, what, what sort of love is this talking about? Uh, in... Hebrew, and actually in Greek, the languages of the Bible, there are multiple words for love. And in this psalm, the word for love is the Hebrew word chesed, or just say chesed, it's easier, um, and, and it's a certain type of love. It's a word used predominantly of God's love for his covenant people. It connotes um, not, not desire, like I, I desire or I prefer Moose Tracks ice cream, but a, a commitment, a faithful commitment of kindness and mercy and care. So, so this chesed love is, is more about God's kindness, his mercy, his loyalty, his faithfulness. It's, it's the sort of love that we are to experience in a marriage. So that's uh, in my statement. If we had different words, I'd say, I this sort of like ice cream, and I chesed love you, you, honey. It's a different sort of thing. And that's what's being said here in this psalm, is it's all God's love never fails. It's his chesed love. It's his loyal love, his his commitment in covenant to care for his people, to be kind and merciful, to, to fulfill his promises, to be faithful. And the history of the Bible is, is of this chesed love that God has that, to people in covenant with him. And they're people that aren't necessarily, necessarily deserving, but they're people whom God chooses to, to be in covenant with. Actually, this whole story of the Bible starts out with a covenant, more or less, with Adam and Eve. God makes mankind, he places them in the garden, he blesses mankind, he gives us everything we need. He gives us the glory, the beauty of creation all around us. Everything, food, clothing, shelter, uh, just the beauty of the sky, the sun, trees, just the whole, the whole of creation. He gives to us and says, take care of it, walk with me, image me. And there's only one thing I want you to, to abstain from. I want you to do all these things. I want you to live in creation. I want you to take care of it. I want you to, to use your gifts. I want you to walk together. But just one thing I want you to abstain from, this tree. This tree that represents an, an alternative decision that I don't want you to go to. This is, it's a real tree. There's real fruit on it. But it represents self-determination, self-will, rebellion, disobedience. In a sense, it's a right fair test of God. I give you all these things. 
limitless things he gives to us and blesses us with and says just one thing I want you to abstain from and, and we know the story. It's a covenant though. It's an arrangement. God says, I give you all these things. I love you. I want you to walk with me. And in response to this arrangement, I want you to enjoy and, and make good use of all these things, but abstain from this one thing. And we know that Adam and Eve broke that covenant. In some ways, the, the remnants of that covenant still exist. We live in his creation. He still blesses us and gives us all these things. But we have broken that covenant. So God pursued mankind. He pursues man in Abraham. He calls Abraham to himself. He, uh, it's a one-sided covenant with Abraham. And basically, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham simply receives it. He believes it. God credits him with righteousness. So this arrangement is through faith. Abraham just believes God, and he receives all this benefit. But if you read the story of Abraham, there's, a, there's an overflow of his life in obedience. So there's things that result from that genuine relationship. And God speaks of his covenant love for Abraham, his commitment to Abraham. That, that commitment, that covenant of Abraham is further kind of stewarded and the context is provided in the covenant with Moses, what we call the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant. That was meant to be a, a context to live out the covenant with Abraham in different ways, in, in a full culture, and they were to be his treasured people. And many did live that way, and God spoke to them of his hesed love for them. So this psalm is written in that context. They're living under the Mosaic Covenant. They, the psalmist, I think, would have understood the gracious covenant of Abraham and, and understood that God truly loves us with this everlasting love, this this loyal, faithful, merciful love, and, and celebrates, the psalmist celebrates that love, but we know the, the rest of the story is that historically the nation, though there might have been people who did believe and live in that in faith, by and large the nation broke that covenant, rebelled against God, relied on their own efforts to, to, to appear righteous, rejected his, his law, rejected faith, and so they irreparably broke that covenant. So in a sense, the, the Hesed love of God was, was not there because they had broken the covenant. And then we know the wonderful rest of the story through Christ, the God-man who came as someone under the covenant of Moses, a, a man fully, but also God in the flesh. He came and he fulfilled all righteousness. He, he was faithful where all others failed. He obeyed. He pleased his father. He loved others. He laid his life down in service to others. He exemplified the law. He came to fulfill all the promises of God. And he laid that righteous life down on the cross. Shedding his blood on the cross. And in a plan that was really had been there all along between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he determined in his death to, to bear... God's just penalty for all the covenant breakers that fill the earth. Whether under the covenant of Adam or the covenant of Moses, all the covenant breakers, all those who have sinned against God. So that's the reality, guys, we live in. You may not come from a Jewish background, but you come from Adam and Eve. You are created by God to live under that original covenant. And you and I and all of us have had all this evidence around us that tells us of the goodness of God, the power of God, the glory of God. We have evidence in our lives specifically in so many ways of how good he's been to us, but left to ourselves, we rebel against him and we run away from him and we do things on our own. And that manifests in all sorts of ways. For some of us, it, it, it manifests in substance abuse, 
being caught up in things that, that take hold of our lives. For some of us, uh, it, it, we get caught up in other addictions. For some of us, we just go into a wild living. And that's rebellion against God. It's saying, I, I don't care. I don't care that you've made all these things. I don't care that you're powerful and good. I don't care that you have a prerogative on my life because you're the creator, I'm the creative. I don't care. I'm going to do this. There's another form of rebellion that's subtle and, and deceiving, I think, perhaps more deceiving. It's, it's the form of rebellion that says, well, I'm not going to be like those people. I'm going to be good. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to please God. And in that approach, you think that somehow I can earn God. I can earn His approval. I can earn His blessing. And I can do the right things and somehow live up to the law. And you might be better than the other guy in some things. But if you're honest, if you look at your own heart, your own heart's dark, just like mine, like all of our hearts. It's selfish. It's not interested in God. And so we will use religion to serve ourselves. That's the other more subtle side. Using religion to serve ourselves really so that we can kind of get on God's good side to get Him to do what we want. It's not really a heart of faith and belief and devotion to the Lord. And it's really just as rebellious. And it's probably even more dangerous than the wild living side because you can be deceived. You can think you're okay. Usually the wild person knows I'm not okay. But the good person can think, I'm okay. But it, it's, it's just as rebellious, just in a different form. And God could have left us there with no claim on his love, no claim on Psalm 136. He could have left us there, and he would have been just because he had extended this amazing, faithful love to mankind again and again, and we rebelled against it. But Christ came to love the Father, to, to be a good person, but for the glory of the Father and the love of others. He fulfilled our righteousness. He, he was faithful and obedient, and He laid down that righteous life on the cross in your place. The breaking of the covenant of Adam, the breaking of the Mosaic covenant, demanded God's righteous and good response. God must respond to evil and sin. He must punish it. He must put it away. He must deal with it justly. And Christ took on Himself on the cross that just punishment. In a sense, He fulfilled the covenant, all the covenants because He not only obeyed the covenants, but He took the curses, He took the consequences of breaking the covenant on Himself. All of these. He took them for you in a real personal way should you trust in Him. I can't offer you assurance unless I know you've trusted in Him. And that's His call. In offering His life and shedding His blood and offering this new covenant and the proclamation of this truth, the call of God is that you would turn from your sin and your self-reliance and your, your religion and even the things that maybe right now you're gripped by to Jesus. And to put your trust in the One who shed His blood for you. God in the flesh making provision for forgiveness for you and a not, not a, just a fresh start, but a whole transformation of your life as you live in this new covenant by faith. It, and the response is, is simple. The response to this truth is just simple faith. It's not a faith like, I believe it's true. It's a faith like, I want Jesus. I believe it's true and I want it to be true. And I'm turning to the truth now. That's the faith of of the Bible, the re real living faith.
But it's simple, though, just, it's just a turning away and turning to Jesus. And He provided for this new covenant and this context that we can live in by faith in Him. This new covenant, this new arrangement where the love of God is guaranteed to us in Christ. It's amazing. Undeserving covenant breakers like, like us, like me. Forgiven and counted as beloved in Jesus. And we can say once we are in that covenant by faith, God's love never fails. It's amazing, unfailing, chesed love. And that's what this psalm is about. The amazing love of God for us. And, and when we understand the context of the covenants and how this love is meant to function, it, it changes us. So I hope that makes sense. Maybe an illustration. When, uh, when I was young, my parents were very loving. I knew I was loved by my, my parents. They were good to me in so many ways. Um, and I had a lot of friends. I remember in the neighborhood I grew up in, in Chelmsford, actually. Uh, we had a lot of kids around, and, and I had a lot of friends. And my parents actually loved my friends, too. They were very kind of my friends. And, you know, we used to, I just remember they used to come over for dinner and stuff and stuff. But I never, I never thought of my parents' love for me or, or their love for my friends as the same as their love for me. And that's how God is. God loves everybody, actually. The Bible says that. There's a love of God for every human being, for everything that he's made. So no one is outside of the love of God. But this faithful, loyal love is reserved for those who are in the family. And getting the family is easy. It's through faith. Turning away from alternatives through faith. And we're adopted. But that's his holy, his hesed love, is this loyal love, this faithful love that, that's for us. Unlike my parents, my parents never adopted anyone in the neighborhood. God is eager to adopt people. Anybody who wants to be adopted into God's family gets to be adopted. You just need to say, I want in. I want out of that, and I want in with you. And the Bible tells us if you, if you do that by faith, you can count yourself as in. If you have responded in turning away and turning and putting your faith in Jesus, saying, I give my life to you, I trust you for what you've done, you are now in. It's that simple. Now, we mark that out and in through the sacrament of baptism. That's how we mark it. So if you have put your faith in Jesus and not yet been baptized, talk to me or one of the leaders here. We'd love to talk to you about marking that faith, that new life through baptism. But it is yours, and, and you are welcomed in the family. And you are sure, guaranteed recipients of God's chesed love, this faithful, unfailing love. I hope that makes sense. I, I just wanted to say that so you would understand as, as the psalm talks about love, what it means. I'll go on from there. The, the psalmist celebrates first in this psalm the, the chesed love of God in creation for, for his covenant people, really, to the greed for all. God's love is shown in creation. So in verses 1 through 9, that's what it's talking about, his love in creation. That God, God made all things, and he made us to live in creation. He's good to us in creation. This love is shown in what he has made. So every day we get to live in this showcase of God's love for us in creation. It's all around us. An essential truth of the Bible is that God created all things, that there's a creator. Actually, the Bible says that all hum humans know that intuitively to a degree. We may deny it, we may come up with 
plausible arguments to, to give ourselves a sense that, no, that, that's not true and comfort in that perhaps. But the reality behind it all is that there's a creator. We are here because God has made us. We are not a necessary reality of countless fluctuations of the multiverse. We're not that, if you know anything about some of the theories that are out there. We're not that. We are created by God. We're created by God in his love and put in this creation that's full of blessings full of blessings all around us. And what he's made is good. When he, when he makes it in Genesis, he says it's good. When he makes man and women, woman, he says they're very good. That's really important to get. There's a Christian view of creation. There's a Christian view of, of physical and spiritual reality that's essential and distinct from other views. We believe creation is good and very good. All that he's made. Now, we know sins come in and corrupted things, so there's things that have been altered, but in their original form, it's good, very good. Every aspect of creation is good and very good. Now, I think we get that intuitively, right? We, we, you see people do that, that. You see people celebrate the goodness. You, you guys just did it probably last week. Uh, I think we have a picture to show. I don't know if you saw the eclipse. Um, there's a lot of really cool pictures out there. What was part of the wonder of the eclipse? Just the glory of creation, right? It, it's just, it's, it's fantastic. Why? I mean, people who wouldn't consciously profess faith in God were enjoying the eclipse. I mean, if they were consistent with their argument, if they're atheists and stuff, they, you know, it, it's just, hey, it's just stats. This is just planets rotating. What's glorious about it? But we're made in the image of God. We're made to receive and enjoy his love. So we watch things like this and we go, wow, that is so cool. And, and there's just so many things in creation like this, right? I mean, uh, I love this time of year, and I love when fall starts to happen a little bit. Um, you know, I love when, when it gets a little cooler. Fall in New England, I think it's one of the best places to be in the world. I think we have a picture of uh, some of our foliage. People come from all over the world to see this. It's the goodness of God to be enjoyed. He's blessed us, just like in this psalm. He's blessed us in these ways. He's, it's His love. So when you go to look at the foliage, that's in still Vermont actually, when you go to look at the foliage, receive it as the love of God. And if you're a believer, receive it as his unfailing covenantal love for you. He wants you to enjoy it. You're made to live in his creation to receive his love. This is really important to get guys. I actually took some time this summer to study this topic of God's creation and his goodness in creation. The reason I did that is because I've noticed a trend in my own heart. I've noticed a trend among Christians that take the good news of Christ very seriously, a trend to, in some ways, treat creation as, as just like unimportant um, or less than the holy uh, life of devotion. There's a trend among Christians, and there's authors who talk about this, and ultimately the Word of God addresses us. Psalm 136 addresses us. There's a trend in the love of the good news of Christ, the love of the truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again, and we have new life in Him. And the, the love of that truth changing lives, we can become reductionistic in that. And, and what I mean by that is, is we can emphasize that truth to the neglect of other important truths. And we can kind of evaluate our lives like, how good do I get this truth? How many people do I share the gospel with? And we can neglect other aspects of engaging God's creation in the name of devotion to the gospel. You might for instance, decide I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to live in a box. This is an extreme, but I'm going to live in a box and all my money is going to go to missions. 
I'm not going to live in a home, and I'm not going to spend too much time with, with the wrong people or doing things that are, you know, eat, eating the wrong foods, whatever. I'm going to give myself to the gospel. And you might think that's righteous, but the Bible actually would say it's not. Because God made creation, and God made for us to live in creation and enjoy creation. And God redeems us in Christ so that we would demonstrate to the world what the new creation looks like. You've probably heard that, you know, that same people will say, well, I don't want to be rearranging the furniture on a sinking ship, right? You ever heard that? The, other, the thought with that is I don't want to be giving myself too much to my, my job that I do right now because, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pass. I don't want to work in the garden in my yard too much because, you know, this world's going to pass. Why rearrange the furniture on a sinking ship? I need to be telling people this the ship is sinking. And indeed, you need to be telling them the ship is sinking. But you know what? One of the best ways to tell them the ship is sinking is to model for them what a transformed life looks like and how you take care and how you live in God's creation, how you enjoy foliage. And yes, you keep your sights on the good news. And yes, you tell others. But you live out God's intention in creation. We're meant to live in creation to enjoy these things for the glory of God in proper measure. And that means the whole breadth of creation looking at foliage, working a job, using your gifts. Doesn't a misunderstanding of this diminish things like working a job, right? People can think, like, unless I'm a missionary or a pastor, I'm wasting my life working a job. And that's unbiblical. No, you're glorifying God in your job. You're, you're dealing, you're working with creation. You're demonstrating what it looks like to, to manage creation, to steward, to bless others. And, and as a believer, you're meant to model that in a way that compels others to say, wow, there's something different. This this person comes in on Mondays and actually they're in a good mood. And everybody else is, is really complaining. This person's asking other people how they're doing. They care about that other person that gets kind of ignored by everybody at work. They care about that person. All those ways, it just the list goes on and on. Enjoying meals with friends. All these things are ways that, that we live in the love of God. We, we model what it means to be those who are new creations in His creation. We, we point forward to the ultimate new creation when, when Christ will return and all things will be restored. We will live and we will enjoy these things in perfection. We will see the glory of God and the love of God in, in this without limit. So let me ask you how you're doing. How are you doing in your understanding of the Christian life in terms of these elements? Uh, is there a proper measure? Do you understand how these things fit together? This psalm calls us to understand creation as God's love towards us. And so we're to engage these things in love to God and love toward others as well. The psalmist also celebrates God's love and redemption. The context for the psalmist is under the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel have been rescued out of Egypt. So th these are verses 10 through 22. The people have been rescued out of Egypt. They have been oppressed. They have been enslaved in Egypt. God came in in his great mercy and his love and his Hesed love for his people through Abraham and his descendants, through Jacob and his descendants, his covenantal love, his determination to fulfill the promises, and he rescued them from this desperate situation. This nation, the, the most powerful nation probably on earth at the time, with the most powerful army, very dominant, strong culture, very anti-God culture, was oppressing the people of God, enslaving them, and God came in in power and delivered them in a powerful, dramatic way. And their, their whole culture was built around that deliverance and remembering that deliverance. And 
celebrating it and knowing that that, de- that deliverance demonstrated God's love for them. His power against Egypt, his power against the armies, his parting of the sea, leading through the deserts, vanquishing kings in, in the land who opposed them, and then giving their land as a gift to them as an inheritance were all part of God's faithful love to them. Now, I said earlier, they, they broke this covenant. Ultimately, th- how God delivered them from Egypt points forward, it foreshadows deliverance through Christ. Slavery in Egypt is a picture of the slavery to sin. The, the plagues, particularly the plague, the, t- the tenth plague of death is, is a picture of death. The, the result of sin is death. It's spiritual death and then ultimately eternal death apart from God. And God's deliverance is a picture of what Christ does for us. He rescues us from sin and death through faith in Him. And we are redeemed, we are rescued, and now we live in Him with an inheritance that will eventually include physical land in the new creation, but, but includes now His promises for us, His blessing for us, His sovereignty over our lives, His shepherding of our lives, His guidance, His using of us. The, the Scripture is full of promises, this, this inheritance that come, the inheritance that comes from God's great love for us. Real quickly, I just want to show I, just one chapter of the Bible, actually, in the promises, Romans 8. I know this is one chapter that's full of promises. But in Christ, these, these are things that are yours now. And they come from the, the chesed love of God for you in Christ. His love for you, his commitment to you, his unfailing love. So just a, a list of the things, just in this one chapter. One chapter, uh, Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for you. No condemnation. Your sin, as evil as it might be at times, and as, as much of a failure you, you might be, I might be at times, in Christ, there's no condemnation. You're not counted as an enemy and as a failure. You're counted as a son and daughter. Now, there might be correction for you, but there's no condemnation. You're secure. You're free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have, you're you're going to have life to your mortal bodies. The Spirit of God lives in you. You've received the spirit of adoption. You've been adopted. The Holy Spirit, God, the Spirit lives in you. You're heirs with Christ. You're, you're fellow heirs. So, so you're just you're equals with him in, in terms of inheritance in Christ. You receive all the things that, that he deserves. The Spirit of God intercedes for us. He works all things for good. Isn't that amazing? All things, even the hard things, the difficult things, the confusing things, the things you're perplexed over right now. Even your failures, he works those ultimately for good in your life. That's the guarantee. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. He's committed to conforming to the image of the Son. He will not fail in that. Your confidence in in your change in your life comes not from your ability, but from his sure promise to make you like Jesus. You are justified. You're counted as righteous. You will be glorified. You're, You're graciously given all things. He's given you the Son. He will give you all things. Everything that is needed in your life, to work out God's good plan for you, to make you like His Son, and to, to accomplish His work through you, you're, you're, you're going to have all those things. Ultimately, all things will work, work together for your good. There's no charges to bring against you. You are God's elect. You're, you belong to the family. You're chosen in Him. You're, you're, you can't be separated from the love of Christ. You are more than conquerors. Even through the hardships of life, you are more than conquerors. He's overcome the world. Nothing in all creation will separate you from the love of Christ. Love of God in Christ Jesus. Those things are yours, and there's way more in Christ. 
the love of God is seen, his unfailing love is seen in our amazing redemption. This past week, I'm, I'm sure most of you know that, that uh, a woman from Chicopee, Mavis Wanjik, I, said, I don't know how to say her last name, she won the Powerball. $759 million she won. And she could take home uh, 400, over $400 million, I think, after taxes. Wow. What would you do if you won the Powerball? Now, I know you're all godly people and you're, you, you answer as well, of course, I would give it all away to the Lord. Well, maybe most of us. Um, what would it be like to have that money? You know, why do, why do we desire that? Why do we think that would be cool to, to have that money? We, we think that in it there's, there's security and stability, right? If I had the money, then, boy, things are set. I don't got to worry about the bills. don't have to worry about retirement. don't have to worry about paying off school loans. don't have to worry about whatever, you know. I just buy things. And then I'll, I'll be safe and secure. Really? I don't think so. There's still going to be troubles for Mavis, just as a human living in a broken world. And that money's not going to shelter her from that. That money's not going to make it so she doesn't die eventually. That money's not going to cure diseases. Now, I, I pray blessing on her, don't get me wrong. But the reality is, right? Life is full of trouble. And money really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. And it's been demonstrated clearly that it doesn't make us any happier. But we have in Jesus something way better than the Powerball. We have forgiveness, reconciliation with God. We are now counted as beloved sons and daughters. His unfailing love is now ours. We as believers, through faith in Christ, can say with assurance, that his love will never fail. His love for us will never fail. These promises in Romans 8 will never fail. He will use all things for good. So we may have trouble in this world, but he's overcome the world. And in him we are more than conquerors. He will use all things for good. And then we will have an eternal inheritance, the very inheritance that Christ earned way more than $759 million, it's of infinite worth, is ours in Christ. Surely, God's unfailing love never ends. Finally, in last part, the call of this psalm is really in light of all these things, in light of this amazing love and creation and redemption that we would thank Him. We would thank Him. So the end of this psalm, the last verses, the last group of verses, verses 24 to 26, are really a summary, maybe an application to a particular situation, but it, it, I think they're a summary of what's been said previously. He's rescued us. He gives food to all flesh. So he, he's rescued us. He blesses us in redemption. He blesses us in creation. And then the last line, give thanks in the ESV, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever, for God's love never fails. This psalm is about thankfulness and orienting ourselves to, towards God in thankfulness and worship. Guys, this is so important to understand that to be a Christian, to be someone who lives in this unfailing love, is to be someone who's thankful. It's, it's central and essential to the life of God's people to live in thankfulness. It, it's, it makes sense that we have every reason for it. We're to be defined by thankfulness. We're to live in thankfulness. We're to live in light of these truths. We're to live out 
the, the, the sense of Psalm 136 in our lives. We should be repeating all the time, God's love never fails. We're to be thankful. Thankfulness is not an option. It's not a side thing. It's a central thing to who we are and how we live. We're to live as thankful people. It's our holiness. It's our obedience to God. It's a blessing to us. It's truth. It's the only right response. It's truth lived out. To thank God, it's one of our greatest needs. It's your greatest need. To live thankful to God for His love for you in, re- in creation and His love for you in redemption. It's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And, and we know that there's so many blessings in thankfulness. Just the world understands this. Uh, Psychology Today talks, uh, there's an article I I read, talks about uh, studies that have linked it to increased satisfaction, motivation, energy, better sleep and health, reduced stress and sadness. Uh, They've done studies with those who are depressed, clinically depressed, and it shows a strong correlation to thankfulness, inverse correlation. The the attitude of those who are depressed, there's there's, uh, nearly 50% less thankfulness in their lives. Successful marriages, by the way, are marked by thankfulness. They've they done studies, and they, there's a, one expert, he said, he can peg how your marriage is doing just by listening to you for, for like three minutes. Interact. And marriages that have a five-to-one thankfulness-to-critique ratio thrive. Those that come under that struggle. Well, thankfulness has this impact, right? When we thank God, we, we tend to live thankful to others, and it blesses our marriages. Now, I don't say that because, you know, now that you've heard the stats, now you know it's important. God's Word says it's important. We have the Word. We, we, the studies are great, but we have the Word teaching us and really commanding us to live in light of this. So, so as we transition to communion, as the band comes up, I just want to encourage you guys to think, how does your life look in light of thankfulness? We are geared as a church around helping each other this way. That's part of why we have small groups, by the way. We have small groups that meet during the week. We're starting in September with those. One of the biggest reasons that we need to get together is just to remind each other why we should be thankful, to help each other to live in thankfulness, to come alongside each other when we're struggling with thankfulness. We need to live in light of this. So just, I want you to take a minute before we actually uh, share communion and as Mike comes up to lead us in that transition, just take some time right now in this transition to, to think about one way in your life maybe you can grow in thankfulness, one step. Maybe you just realize, wow, it doesn't characterize my life at all. Tell the Lord you're sorry. Ask him to help you remember how he's loved you. Maybe there's a practice of thankfulness that you can engage in, just some way to, to think about. So take a minute to do that, and then we will uh, share communion together and close in song.